Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Welcome to a special episode of The Practice Podcast. This episode is a recording of a panel discussion from Bast Amron's fifth annual Business Advantage Forum, which took place on January 12th, 2023. The forum is a learning event we host and underwrite each year with all the proceeds donated to a charitable organization. This year, our theme was rejuvenation, and this panel is called Talent Wars, Recruiting and Retention Strategies for a Competitive Market. If you enjoy this episode, we will be releasing more recordings from the forum on this podcast. And please join us for our next forum in 2024. And you can find information and recordings from prior years on our website at bastamron.com. I'm going to introduce Jamie Leggett, who is our moderator. Jamie is an attorney with our firm. He is going to moderate a a talent-laden panel on talent wars for recruiting or retention strategies. All right. I'd like to come up. All right. So hi there, everyone. We have an incredible panel for you today. We'll be touching on some of the uh, topics that the mayor just raised about talent, recruiting people, valuing people, maintaining a good company culture. So this panel is Talent wars, fighting out here in these trenches, recruiting and retention strategies for a competitive market. And so this is prompted because businesses now of, of all types and sizes are being besieged by staffing issues. They are struggling to find new employees and they're struggling to keep the ones that they already have. And so today, our panel of experts, the three that we have here, we're going to talk about you know, what are the strategies that work in today's environment. You know, how do you maintain a good office culture that will keep employees? And then how do you build and maintain diverse and inclusive work environments? So I'm going to intro the panelists and order from my left to my left, well, for the left. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if stage left, civics, right, but... So, this is the first guy here is Seth uh, Cassell. He's the co founder and co president of Every Mundo. He has a t shirt. But his company is the global leader in fair marketing technology for airlines. If you've booked a plane ticket, you've probably seen his company's technology at one point or another. So, they work with over 60 airlines and other companies across six continents and 35 languages. His company built it from the ground up, bootstrapped it from himself and a partner, up to 170 employees worldwide, with about half of them in Miami. And so uh, he holds a BA in mathematics and an MBA, both from Harvard, or that school up in Boston. He has built a startup consultancy as well, and a music management company, and previously worked at Sony Music and at Citigroup. And finally, he is a board member of Lotus House, which is the charity we're supporting today. Next up, we have Daniel Torres, who is the VP and Senior Managing Counsel for Cyber and Intelligence Solutions Global at MasterCard, which is an unknown company that none of us have any idea what it is. So it's no instruction. He is a lawyer and an entrepreneur who has worked with and advised some of the top Fortune 500 and uh, European enterprises as well for over 20 years, or for almost 20 years. His experience ranges, and so this I'm going to have to read off because it's very broad. Infrastructure development, public-private partnerships, project finance, private equity, renewable energy, insurance, compliance, risk management, technology, cyber, crypto, media, social networking. There's probably other things, but we only have so much time. Um, and so he has a bachelor's in business administration from the University of Puerto Rico and a law degree from the University of Puerto Rico School of Law. He's also an investor and an entrepreneur in the fields of wellness, wine, and hospitality. And then last but not least, we have Ebony Smith. She's the founder of Ebenum Equation. I hope I pronounced that right. Perfect. Which partners with clients to develop leadership resilience and improve team performance, specializing in volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous work environments. So she signs up for the tough stuff. Uh, among many, many other things. 
leading coaches, corporate teams, and corporate leaders trying to go from excellence to preeminence. She's also the co-founder of Ebenham Leadership Academy, which trains leaders to become coaches and serves as a faculty fellow at the Florida International University Center for Leadership. She holds a BS in chemistry from Jefferson University and a master's in environmental protection and safety management from St. Joseph's University. And previously, Ebony worked in the Fortune 100 for 20 years for Ryder, Sunoco Logistics, BP, Integrated Supply and Trading, and World Free Services, including 13 years on the oil trading floor. So, as you can tell, we have a very esteemed panel of experts. And so, just to start it off, I know like we were just hearing about headwinds going to 2023. It's gonna be a wild ride. You know, we don't have a crystal ball, but we have the very our very own mayor saying, well, maybe you want you know some economic troubles. But does that mean that this topic of recruitment and maintaining good cultures, maintaining employees, that that's that that's not gonna to continue to be important through 2023 going forward? And I'll pass that to you, Evan. Yeah, absolutely. I think it continues to be important. And it's important for us to remember headwinds also come with tailwinds, right? So with the pandemic, there were winners and losers, and so much so that I had friends, we had a standing Friday night happy hour over Zoom, and we would talk about the current winners and losers inside of the lockdown and which industries we thought were moving forward. So with every set of headwinds we get, we also get a set of tailwinds. I think the fight for talent will continue on as we're moving forward. I originally started my business, I was still on the trading floor, trading financial derivatives, don't hate me. Um, for real. <laughs> I worked in the oil industry. But we would always look at what's the next move. It's easy to take the first play, right? Where you're looking at all the headwinds, but what are the tailwinds that you should be looking at that are 18 months to three years down the line? Which is kind of where my business came into play. I remember watching a talk and it talked about the fight for people. And they predicted it was going to start in 2020 and it would go to 2030. And this is just really about birth rates. If you look at how many people were born, we just don't have enough people. And so the fight for the war for talent will continue on. The first estimates were like 2030, but it's really probably going to go into probably like 2033. 10,000 baby boomers became eligible for retirement starting in the mid-2010s. They continue to be eligible. They move themselves from the workplace. You're looking at global rates of not having enough people. So the fight for talent continues on. I don't think it goes away anytime soon. Some countries, if you look at like ones that are in the news right now, like Russia, their birth rate declined by 50% from 1986 to 1996. The people they have on the front line now were the repopulation group. And they're not doing well in this skirmish. China has the fastest death rate in Asia, aging population of Asian countries. So we just look at what's happening in the United States. We have one, two, nine, 11s every month because of the opioid epidemic. We had 260,000 people that are workforce age that are no longer available because they passed away during the COVID pandemic. And there's probably more people. So when you begin to think about these things as we go through multiple pandemics, the headwinds are there. It's not just this year, but what tailwinds can you use to help you retain and attract your own talent. Yeah, and just to follow up on that, I'm sorry to keep it moving because I know we have a little bit less time. Yeah. But taking that from the macro level to a more micro level, you know, I know a number of employee, employers rather, they have these non-compete agreements with their employees. And they're thinking like, oh, okay, I got this person locked in. I got this person locked in. And so you told me that that might change. On January 5th, the FTC came out with an announcement to get rid of non-competes around the 60-day non-comment period. As non-competes go away, how does that change your own retention strategy to hold on to your employees? Daniel and I both come from garden leave cultures for working in investment banking as his background in me and oil and gas. And so people don't resign, you go on garden leave, right? And that's how they keep the non-competes more enforceable. But it's not universal. So I think this will be a corporate challenge. I think um, when I was looking at some of the opinions on the right and the left, some people want it because they want talent. Right? They want to get rid of the non-compete so that they can, the small pool that's available, they would like access to them. Others want it to hold on to their, the brains that they have to continue their advantage. So I think we'll see what happens. Part of that also says that two things important. One, you have to tell all of your employees once it goes into effect that their non-competes are no longer in effect. And the second one, 
if you're going through a buyout, if you don't own more than 25% of the company, there is no non-compete. So think about all the minority owners and companies that have raised capital. Yeah, that's wild. And something to keep uh, your eye on, whether if you're a business owner or if you're someone who currently has a non-compete once they're leaving. So turn it from that on to you know, recruiting practices. I'm going to tee this one up for you, Seth, because as I mentioned, you built your company from the ground up. You have 170 employees. There's obviously, you hired a lot of, a lot of people. Like, so what do you have to say about what you think is the best way for creating what you experience. Yeah, absolutely, and, and I think this actually connects to the, the initial question of, you know, in, in a year of headwinds, how important is retaining talent, attracting talent, et cetera, and, and the work to be done. So as, as a bootstrapped company founder, it was never about throwing money at people, let's put it that way. That was never an option for us. We didn't have that kind of availability of capital to do so. And so where we ended up netting out, which I think we're only doubling down on now uh, this year, given what's going on in the market, is using transparency and trying to give an honest lens into a day in the life in the company, into what we give, what is that social contract you're signing up for with your employer, and give people a sense of a peace of mind that they're that the trust that they're willing to give up, that the time they're willing to invest in their job is worth it, that it will be a fulfilling experience. Uh, which we find is inevitably about more than money. It always is on, on some level. And so in the early days, this was a very kind of personal thing. We were a small company, just adding one person at a time. And so myself, my partner could be that. We could embody that on behalf of the company. And it, it was as simple as whatever we say, whatever that commitment is, just delivering on it, right? Which again, is easier said than done maybe, but I think it is, is the case. And then as we grew, it became about formalizing this, creating processes and frameworks in the company to institutionalize transparency and to institutionalize a kind of employee-first mentality and show that we ask a lot of our people. We do. We, we drive them very hard, but it's worth it. And it's going to come back around in the community that we offer and the support that we offer. It manifests itself in things like when real life happens, a medical situation, a personal situation, we completely do away with anything other than that for the moment. That, that is the concern because real life does happen and, and what we do, there's no one open you know, on the operating table. So you have to have that, that sense of perspective. And then even what Mayor Lamine was talking about, she kind of half-jokingly talked about you know, that moral companies maybe aren't, aren't so common. That becomes a competitive advantage. If you can really double down on that and then live it, it becomes, it becomes part of the brand. Part of that, that experience, part of the employee experience. And so in light of the fact that, particularly in the tech market, there's been this unbelievable about face, right? In a matter of months, the market went from growth at all costs, capital's cheap, go for it, pay whatever it takes to get whoever it takes, to build whatever it takes to sell whatever it takes, right? All of a sudden, you have to run a disciplined, profitable, sustainably growing company. Imagine that, right? And that completely, for us, well, for the industry, it flipped on its head the notion of attracting and retaining talent. I think for us, it only reinforced this, the approach that I'm describing. Because as you've probably seen, there's many big tech companies have just laid off a lot of people. And so those kind of companies Let's say they can get away with that because they, no one is worried. They get, you know, their, their, share, their share price is rewarded for doing that. I can only imagine what the sentiment inside the building is like when they do things like that. But at no point is anyone worried that you know, Amazon is going away. The minute you step out of that tier of, of technology company, the signal it sends, not just externally, but to the market, is what is the health of this company, right? This isn't just like a share price, you know, valuation tactic, letting go of people. And so, once again, if you can demonstrate that level of commitment, that willingness to have honest, transparent conversations about what you're trying to achieve in business and with the business, I think that becomes a powerful tool to attract and, and retain, and, and you can play around on our website, you can see we've, we've tried to really push the envelope on that as part of transparency. Mm -hmm. yeah, and so, Daniel, I know that you have some things to, to, to tag on to that. We were just talking about, you know, how uh, headwinds produce tailwinds. Apparently, you all are doing well with the, the layoffs that these 
<laughs> and I think also as TF because I know that you have some thoughts about um, smaller businesses in recruiting. Yeah, it's very interesting, right? Because when you first spoke for this event a few months ago, and then it was rescheduled, we had a very different conversation around telling you tech, right? We Mastercard is a tech company in the payment space, and unlike some of the other tech companies that have been in the news lately. We're not laying anybody off, right? I think part of it is that the management really was conscious of how we grew. Like, just to give you an example, in 2019, our former CEO, Ajay Banga, came out and he spoke about something called the decency quotient. And he basically told people, decency quotient is your disposition to make decisions on an ethical basis. Or if you take it to the business level, it's treating your coworkers, your customers, your business environment how you would want to be treated, right? It's kind of a golden rule kind of thing. And we've seen back in 2019, we had the pandemic, and now it was time to test it. How are you going to treat your employees? How are you going to recruit? How are you going to hire? And, and I am the beneficiary of that, right? I, I am based in Miami, but my position is a New York role. At that time, they decided, well, we, we can't find people in New York, so for some reason, people didn't want to work in New York or something, and they expanded the search nationwide, and that's how I come into, into MasterCard. It's very interesting because I, I agree, right? You see an Amazon, a Twitter, you know, Coinbase, right? We, we do a lot of work in the crypto space now, and, and they just laid off a bunch of people. For us, that represents an opportunity because now I have a pool of people that are super talented, have a lot of experience, they can work remote, because I don't need them all to be in New York or in my office in Brooklyn. They can be in Missouri, they can be in Kansas, they can be on the other side of the world. We have a team in Singapore, we have a team in London, we have, and, and it, I think it creates a lot of opportunity. Um, it's a matter of perspective, but you have to seize the opportunity, taking into account that the headwinds bring tailwinds, so you can't go crazy and kind of try to build these things that are not sustainable. You have to do it in a way that's that's even paced and definitely taking into account the realities of the market and, and, and people. Right? It's really all about people. Like how, how well you treat your people, how you retain your people. I guess we'll, we'll get there at some well, point. Actually, you're making me think of uh, another question. I'll move it up a little bit. Because when the next topic is, you know, what can employers offer to employees beyond just giving them more money? Because giving them, you know, everybody loves more money, but as an employer, you may not be able to afford it or may not get you exactly what you want. So like these sort of non-monetary sorts of compensation. And I know that you recently had an experience with MasterCard, like with respect to Trinity League. Yeah. Uh, I am, first off, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> I am the direct beneficiary of that, mm -hmm. right? Um, we have a 16-week paid family leave policy that applies to dads, moms, previous for adoption. So it's it's very variable in how we apply it. And you can break it up, which is what I did. You know, I took a few days, a few weeks off when, when we had our baby, and then now I'm going to do the second leg now because my wife is an accountant and tax season is starting, so uh, we need to we need to help each other there. But it's it's stuff like that. And people really value it, right? I mean, yeah, you can throw a ton of cash at folks, but not everybody is in a position to throw a ton of cash at folks. And the money gets to a point where it's not enough. Like it's it's not that you get to a certain pay grade, I guess, that it's gotta be more than just money. It, it's you know, time off, remote working. We, we instituted Flex Fridays, right? If if you want to block off the rest of your afternoon and go work at the beach or not even take calls, or you can't on Friday afternoon, and pay paternity leave, stuff like that, that resonates a lot with, with our staff. Yeah, and so turning to you, Seth, I know that you, your company, you have been in a unique and special situation. A lot of your employees have been immigrants. And so I know because of that, like you, you told me that this company needs to be a support system. Like what, right. that, what does that mean, what do you do? Yeah, so early on, I mean, my, my business, I'm born and raised here, but my business partner is born in Russia, raised in Cuba, and has a story, you know, worthy of Hollywood, honestly. Um, and early on, we, we did hire immigrants simply because we were not in a position to afford talent that came with a quintessential resume 
that would then be highly sought after in the market. But of course, the notion of talent, right? Talent, you're born with talent, right? And you cultivate that talent, and it's not a function of necessarily the brand on the resume per se. And so we, like our third and fourth hires were, were software engineers who were months from coming from the day they, they arrived in Miami, Cubans, and we've tacked into different networks that way, so we have a majority of our engineers are, are Cuban, uh, disproportionate number of our customer success team happened to be Mexican because we just plugged into a grad school in Mexico and it just led to a lot of referrals. Um, and again, because we're hiring one person at a time at our size, right? And so there was a lot of that going on. Now, as a result of that, we learned some things, which is that, yes, of course everyone wants to get paid a fair amount, people want to make more, but when you start to unpack why people want money other than you know for discretionary spending and leisure and things like that, it's for security, right? And it's for peace of mind. It helps take care of some of those things. But there, we realized there were other ways to do that. And then in doing so with an immigrant population, now worldwide we're about 75% immigrant. That includes even like our Singapore office is led by an Australian of Sri Lankan heritage, right? Like things like that. Covering all of healthcare, right? Number one. Because there's lack of understanding of this insane healthcare system of ours by someone who just arrived in this country, right? It is not like what it was like where they came from. So simply by just paying for it and providing a support network to help them manage it, hugely valuable to them. Far more valuable than giving them the money to pay for it. Understanding that we just very, very proactively say we have an open door policy for anything such as we've done everything from helping people figure out where to move because they need to consider school districts for their child of a certain age, understanding the realities of the expenses associated with commuting and things like that and helping them make decisions that way. Then we also have essentially a visa blind hiring policy because we found that A, it's a great way to get, get a lot of talent is to, to spend the money required to secure visas for international talent that want to be here. And, and think about that, right? They want to be here actively to that point. And then it also becomes a hugely stressful element in their life right? Their work authorization status, their ability to be here, their, the ambivalence of should I make a life here, right? Should I really plant roots here not knowing what will be? And so by participating in that with them, it's an amazing retention strategy, right? And, and, and so it, I think it surpasses any non-compete, any you know, golden handcuff or anything like that is the fact that we're a participant in their peace of mind in their life, even beyond their pure professional life. And so we, we're always looking for ways to do that. Again, it, it feels like the right thing to do. It's great for branding, and it's selfish. It's great for attention. And so, now, I mean, I know you work with the whole, your, your clients are in the guns again. You work with the clients. Like, what are you saying about this sort of non-monetary compensation that can be, can be offered? I've seen everything. People just get creative from engagement surveys. So in one particular company, they had a factory in a rural area of America. They realized that there was not great financial literacy. So they began to offer, like, how do you create a budget? That town had a lot of payday loan stores, but no actual banks. And so what did that, yeah, exactly, right? No actual banks. And so, like, they had so many people that weren't on direct deposit because of it. And they were, they're looking at lower payroll costs, let's be honest, right? But also, not have so many checks getting processed, knowing that they, the, the money was there. Because people would actually come in on their days off or send a spouse, which they didn't want to do that with if they were fighting. So they started financial literacy and then convinced the credit union to come to their town two days a week so they could service the employees' needs, right? And so those kind of things help with creating a culture that says, we are here in it for us and we want to bring you with us. And so it's just in those kind of little things that people do along the way that help people out. Large tech companies, Carrie Lee, like Daniel's on, of my clients, you don't have to have a life event. And so a trend that I saw during COVID was that people took 12 weeks full paid leave. They were like in their early 20s, Generation Z, because they were stressed out and didn't have resiliency. And so what does that look like, right? And so what does it look like when you care a little bit more and dig a little bit deeper the one thing that stops employee engagement is you don't ask the question to your employee, what do you need to actually live? Most people can't give you that answer in five minutes. How much money do you need to bring in the door in order for you and your family to live 
comfortably. Starting asking that question and bringing in literacy, it begins to shift the culture. Well, and they only know the answer when they're not living comfortably. Correct. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's like fascinating. And I'm turning back to you, I've changed the subject a little bit, but like how about you know developing a good culture for employees? Like it's about managers. I know that you've actually written about there's four kinds of needs. I think that people would find that interesting. Sure, yeah. So I talk about how do you create psychologically safe teams that foster innovation. And so the first level is people need to feel valued for who they are. So the humanity, not the fact that they went to Harvard. Thank you, Seth, but not because of that, but bringing in athletics. I worked on a trading floor, I'm comfortable. <laughs> and that are valued for their humanity, not for the worthiness they bring to the job. One, the second one is that they have a, a, the right to engage and learn that they can be the person who's not the subject matter expert. And then the second one is, the third one is contributor safety. Do you give them the autonomy with an exchange of giving them the right pathway? Do you think come for them? And then the last one is challenger safety. Do they get air cover for candor? Can they ask you the hard questions and still keep their job? Whenever I go into a company, I'm like, oh, have you told them this? And they say, oh, no, I'm going to get fired for that. I might lose, and people will say in open meetings, I might lose my job. That's a company that doesn't have psychological safety. You can't innovate and incubate innovation if your people don't have the ability to go into discourse and expect polarization in your innovation session. You're not going to thrive. Yeah. Again, this is really super interesting. Your company creates something called ops in a box, like yes. operations in a box. So could you explain that? I know that yeah, directly into culture. That's right. So for us, I guess. One good advice we got at one point was that culture is not aspirational for a company. You don't say, this is the culture I think I have or I want to have. You have to have a very honest, dispassionate, self-reflective moment as a company to say, what is my culture? You might not like what you see, and then you have the ability to change it. But we had this happening very organically, our culture, and it would shift. Like, there was kind of seasons to it. And along the way, as we're building the business, we're putting a lot of rigor and attention and resources certainly behind product and technology. And we're doing the same behind go-to-market and sales and customers and all that. But then we're not necessarily, we find ourselves constantly retrofitting to catch up with the company, right? So you have like the business, like the product and the, and, and, and the customer and the sales. But then the company itself, we're just always like a step behind. And so we learned the hard way that we needed to be rigorous equally about the company. And so we started to develop frameworks and again, got to get a lot of good advice around what it means to set goals for the company. And when I say this, this is not goals for the purpose of measuring performance. This is alignment, right? This is ensuring that everybody knows what the company's trying to do and on what timeline. And then that way the departments can know what they're trying to do on what timeline and the individuals. And it's just like this nested thing. And then we said, well, how are you expected to behave? Right? Well, that's the values, right? You need prescribed values. And it started off as values, which was just a series of abstract nouns. And then, of course, with majority immigrant culture, non-native speakers, they all did not understand the same way what those words meant. And so it became values and actions, right? Where we, and we've done iterations on this. And then how we define hierarchy, how we define management, which was this concept of the Bill of Rights, the Employee Bill of Rights. We couldn't define what it meant to manage someone because it was inconsistent between a sales manager, an engineering manager, a finance manager, but to be managed was consistent, right? If you're in, in the company, the company will look after your well-being, will ensure you're following processes, will make sure you have the subject matter expertise you need to do your job, will make sure you're clear on the outcomes that are expected of you. That was consistent, and then it's just kind of weighted different. So long story short is these frameworks became our operational manual. And they happened organically, and every I don't know, year or two, et cetera, each one of them started to collect dust, started to feel a little aged, but we were iterating on it, as opposed to having to build it from the ground up every time. And finally, we reached a point where we said, wow, this is getting consistent. This is the glue that enables us to maintain and adjust and manage our culture, which is so critical to the success of the business. And so we took it one step further to open source these things. Because we said, if we prepare these frameworks for the public to digest, then we're, they're really tight, right? It really is the best way 
to ensure that any part of the business is operating at, at, at truly a, you know, a top level. And so you can see these things. I mean, the easiest way, go Google every window ops in a box. It's a, web, it's a page on our website, and there's a whole world where we unpack these things and the notion, and we released this when we were, around the time we were acquired last year, probably was a year and a half ago, as a way to demonstrate, number one is to give back to the local community because we got so much from it, and we felt like other up-and-coming companies like ours didn't have to learn the hard way, did not have to repeat the mistakes we made. We could help them fast-track that. But it's also, again, selfish in the sense that with the open sourcing of this, it's that same open source principle that you apply to software. We've solicited feedback. We've worked with some other businesses that have taken piece of these to help their internal challenges. They tell us how it's working for them. And then that allows us to make ours better, not only by what we learn internally, right? Because up until then, we were only applying this to our own company, which means improvement was only motivated by a flaw or a mistake where we saw you know, a gap or we had outgrown something. And so this rigor, right, the same level of rigor in process and framework in also ensuring adherence and accountability for these things, by putting the same amount of that that we do into our software development, into our sales efforts, into our customer management, we started to see similar outcomes to those areas. We weren't constantly playing catch up. It became part and parcel and in many ways I'd say it's become the tip of the spear, uh, especially now as, as a subsidiary of a bigger company with its own culture, with its own processes. This just continues to get, these things are, are just tested and we, we come back to them all the time. Yeah. Thank you for that. And by the way, I'll second that, just Google it. Uh, every window hops in the box. They're all on there. You can use them for yourself and your own businesses. And I'm happy to talk to them again because it's it's yeah. for us. Yeah. And so I want to, Daniel, you've been listening very intently. But do you have something you want to add? About? No, I, I I'm I'm fascinated because yeah. it's absolutely right. We we talk about it at Mastercard and the Mastercard way, right? And it's it's doing well by doing good, and it's a lot of really pretty words on walls and stuff, but people actually buy into it. Right, and it starts, and I know we hear it a lot in seminars and conferences and articles that's on from the top. Right? There's a lot of business leaders in the room, but it's fascinating to have you here because you actually did it, right? And so we talk about it. Our former, like I said, our former CEO, he's Indian, and our current CEO is German. And, and then the shift was very interesting, but they both bought It's a value that they live out. Right? It's, it's that decency that needs to permeate through the entire organization. And, and when you actually see someone who's done it from the ground up, it's, it's really fascinating because we live in it and we think that it just happened organically. Like, oh yeah, it just happened. But it takes a lot of thought, it takes a lot of intent to create a culture that is welcoming, that is innovating, and that everybody thinks and feels that they belong. Right. My team is dispersed all over the world. London, Missouri, New York, Miami, wherever. And, and we all feel part of this team that is doing really cool stuff. We're working on really complex and really interesting matters. But more importantly, we actually get along. Like we actually enjoy working together. Because we've been very intentional about creating a culture where if somebody needs to go on paternity leave, I can trust my team to to do what they're doing and I can disconnect for 16 weeks and come back and be like, all right, what happened? And nothing broke. Uh, that's the kind of culture that you want. But that's the kind of culture that you want to implement. That's the kind of culture that you want to create. And it has to be real. It can't just be words on the wall. You have to live it out every single day. And you said intentional. That's it. That's it. I think if, if not, and again, before we really got serious about it, you get tribalism, right? Like certain people just spend more time with each other working in a given day or week or month, and they form a little, their own culture. And that might not work across lines. That There, there can be oil and water there, certainly. And I mean, here's like a, a little example of when we had a, a, a negative shift. We got to a point, I don't know, around like 20, 25 employees, where we could start to afford the cute things that tech companies have, like ping pong tables and things like that, right? And so we started doing a little more of that snacks and, and those kinds of things. And for those who had been there, they saw it for what it was, like we earned this, right? 
But with the next, the next like 10 hires, they were coming to work for the company because of those things. <laughs> that was what was alluring to them. They thought it signaled something about the company. They didn't realize the opposite, which is, you know, we, we always saw ourselves as you're happy because you're productive. You're not productive because you're happy, right? And we started finding that, that those new employees, by the way, most of which are still here, so we, we, we course corrected. Um, it wasn't them. They thought that we were expected to be productive because we were making them happy through snacks and ping pong and things like that. And so, like, again, these, I'm sure there's billion dollar versions of that that could happen in Microsoft. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm a MasterCard is, uh, if not managed, right? If not intentional, it's, it's, it's yeah, that's right. I have a verbal vote for uh, foosball. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you write the song, you can choose. Thank you. So, um, changing gears a little bit, I want we have to get onto um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. It is such an important topic nowadays, especially with recruitment, uh, maintaining good culture, and whatnot. And it's a big topic. And so, I want to ask, toss it over to you, Evan. Like, how do you effectively create? diverse and inclusive work environments. Why is that important? Well, one, it's a fight for talent. If you leave out a significant portion of the population, it's going to make it harder for you, just plain and simple. But two, when you're looking at, there's about $25 trillion in wealth in the United States, and 20% of it is inside minority-owned businesses. So when we talk diversity, it's not just employees, but it's also what does your supply chain look like? So it's important, one, for psychological safety, but two, you know, some of the mishaps we saw, especially most recently with Balenciaga and a few others and Gucci with their sweaters, happened because you're in the echo chamber. So managing and polarization is one of the headwinds that you can overcome really easily and make it a tailwind, because if you have diversity of thought at the table, people who don't all agree, who all didn't grow up the same, you're gonna get a more innovative product that's gonna tap into a customer base that you haven't thought about, right? So if you think about things like, you know, Google with their new Pixel phone, they went true tone, right? And then they open source it so that other people can identify other skin tones besides the majority Western European skin tone. In that, they tapped into a new marketplace. They realized that a lot of things that they're developing needs to have product inclusion, right? And so that diversity and inclusion doesn't just come in saying, hey, we have this many minority employees, we live in a majority-minority city. But it also is also the things that you see below the waterline. Do we have veterans? Do we have single moms? Do we have a stay-at-home mom who now has returned to the workforce who has a completely different view of what Miami looks like for certain people? Tapping into those that diversity of thought and experience and lived experience changes how you show up to your clients, one, but then also to your employees. So I think diversity is important. I would like for us to move beyond the stuff that's above the iceberg, but America has a 400-year history of it, and we haven't spent 400 years working on it. So those things will come up. But when you're talking innovation and retaining talent, highlight those things. One of my very first clients was a product manager in Silicon Valley. She's MIT-educated, double degree. She was coming back from maternity leave. And I said, what do you want in your next company? A friend's sister. And I said, and she goes, Culture is the most important thing. Just I'm gonna get lots of job offers. I've been, I've seen a lot of companies I work for go public. I have resources. My husband is at a very well-known tech company and writes a lot of patents for them. He was a, he's a, he was a product manager as well. And she goes, can we just create thing? When I talk to you, can we just create a matrix of what's most important to me? And so we did this culture matrix. After every interview, she scored them because she's a product manager. She, went to MIT, she built, a, she built a little program for it. We plugged it all in, and only the top three companies, culture-wise, got a second-round interview with her. And then we, we came up with what, the, what was that test going to be for her to want to join. It was two days at that company. And so the culture test that Seth talked about was her deciding factor. Nine job offers in seven days. Right? Nine, and she hadn't worked in nine months because she was, we only had three months. She was, I want to be with my baby longer. I'm just going to resign. I can get a job pretty easily. This was seven years ago. And it was in those culture tests she saw that people went home. She was, yeah, everybody started leaving around 5, 5.30, which makes sense to me. My last job I had to stay till 8.30. I need to see my baby. Other things that were important. Her boss was like, 
you should know I knew before. And she was like, really? She's like, but he's like, but I go online after my kids I'm doing bad. So if you send me email and emails after four, I'll kind of catch up on them after my kids go to bed and respond to you, but I'll time it for 7 a.m. Mm-hmm. the next day so that you don't have to respond to me. And those were the cultural things that kept her at that place because product management is really important in a tech company. They actually know where the company is going in 18 months or two years. The CEO and CEO are very operationally focused in six months, but that product manager has the vision for where their next customer set comes from and also then where their work chart is going to go. So understanding what that matrix and the culture looks like was super important to her and has become more and more important to people as we go through the syndemics and the endemic we're going to continue to live through for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Noah? What do you have to say? I think it's super interesting. I'll give you a few examples. My manager was went to a very prestigious law school. She is Greek-American, and at some point in her career, she had three young boys at home, and she decided to just stay home. She stayed home for eight years and came back. And so MasterCard hired her, because again, your skills are your skills. Like your life events are your life events. And it was not a consideration, right? It was one of those things where she's great, she's talented, she knows what she's doing. Yeah, she's been home for a while, but I mean, look at that talent, right? And, and, and you, you bring that in and, and you foster that cultural inclusion. Like, I'm a product of that, right? I'm born and raised in Puerto Rico. I went to law school in Puerto Rico and, and I've been given opportunities throughout my career, a lot of them that I was allowed to walk into rooms that I probably shouldn't have been invited to, right? But that culture, that that inclusion, that diversity that you create in your in, in your environment and in your company starts to reflect in the products and the things that you start creating, right? For example, I'm going to say maybe a year ago or a little less, Mastercard came out with what we call the Mastercard Touch. So it's a credit card that. You know, credit cards now, if you open it, you pull out your Bank of America card. It used to be that you could touch the numbers and, and know what it was. Now they're all flat. So for someone who's blind, that creates a challenge, right? So somebody internally who was very receptive and had a personal experience with a blind family member said, why don't we create something for this segment of the community, which when you think about it is not a major part of the community and major part of your, your customer base, but we still did it, right? And now you your debit card feels different than your credit card, different from your prepaid card. Stuff like, again, we're very receptive to every community. So there is a program for certain banks that have wanted to partner to create credit cards that you can use your true name, right? It's called MasterCard True Name because it reflects your identity, not necessarily what your legal name. And so these are things that start trickling into your product development phase. So now we have our product developers and our, you know, our really smart tech teams using their personal life situations, whether it's parenting, their choices, lifestyle, whatever they want, is also reflecting your work. And you have to be receptive to that because then that's going to create opportunities for your business and create a culture within your workspace that is really it's really fostering to, to everyone. Everybody feels included, everybody feels heard, and it, it's really, I mean, I know it sounds like a lot of Kool-Aid, Kumbaya, but it's real, right? It's, I mean, and again, I, I've been around, I've worked at investment banks and stuff like that, and this is a very different kind of animal because everybody from the tone, from the top has been intentional about creating this culture. How about you, Seth? I know that you have a very intercultural, cross-cultural workforce, you know. How do you try to make sure that everyone feels included or deal with any miscommunications or whatnot? Yeah, I mean, I, so, in listening to the others, I don't want to repeat what they've said, because that's, that's very much the, uh, the benefit that we've seen around, you know, diversity of experience, um, diversity of thought. What I think is interesting, as I think about diversity and the, the diversity in our team, and what that means, Diversity comes at, at, at first glance with certain challenges around things like communication and potentially a not a substantial prior knowledge and understanding simply on the back of shared culture or you know shared experience. However, 
Because of that, by addressing the, those challenges, by fostering communication, by enabling people of diverse experiences and backgrounds and cultures and genders and, and races and ethnicities to work well together, your company becomes phenomenal, right? It builds an incredibly strong business where you're not cutting corners on, on alignment and on communication, which then the output of that, this is what I'm thinking of, I'm trying to like kind of put it together as, as, we're, as we're talking, is for us, I think it's been empathy, right? Because it's very easy and natural to be empathetic with some to someone who has a very, very similar experience to you. But the work that goes into having empathy for someone who doesn't then fosters institutional empathy and a norm of empathy. And, and those who are not empathetic are pariahs. And that's what you want, right? And then the other side of it for us is in the market. We work with 100 airlines around the world. They're literally all over the world, right? That's how airlines are. There's not, there's not too many in any one country, right? Uh, let alone in a city. And so the diversity, and I mean, I just read a book on this, it's insane. Like the, the experiences we have with our customers are run the gamut. You can imagine working with a Chinese airline, a Thai airline, an Indian airline, an airline in Rwanda, an airline in Germany, an airline in Canada, an airline in Brazil. It, the, you're dealing with people, and those people are usually from those places. And by developing the understanding of the work needed to communicate well and the benefits that, and the empathy that comes with that, it informs the way we engage our customers, and it gives us it leads to business success, it leads to customer retention, it leads to customer growth, it leads to a warmth of trust in the relationship with the customers. So it, again, it becomes something, frankly, if you can get it right, you can weaponize it in the market. And that's very powerful. That's a good point. We have a, a, a few minutes left. So there's something that I wanted to ask about, which is quiet quitting. It's coming up in the press of people who are basically, pejoratively, it means doing the bare minimum. You know, perhaps people are burnt out from COVID and whatnot. And, but there may be other perspectives on it. What about you? What do you think, Daniel? I mean, to be honest, I think it's always been there. We might have not always. <laughs> we just call it something really trivial. We used to call it someone who was slacking, and, or someone who was just checked out, or we had all these terms for it, right? I think it's always existed. We just are now paying attention to it, and we want to do something about it. Right. I, I, I saw it when I first came out of law school and worked at a law firm and you could tell who was wanting to ride that partnership track and who was just there to get their paycheck and go home and everybody thought, hey, just does what he does. And it's fine, right? I think you have to be open to everybody's personal situation. Like some people, I had a conversation this morning from someone in my team. He's in the middle of a... They just moved, his wife just had a baby, and, and he says, I don't want a promotion right now. Like, I, I am good where I am, I'm going to do my job and I'm going to kick butt, but I'm going to, I'm good where I am, right? And, and so I'm like, right, you know, it's not quite quitting, but it's similar, like, you have to be open and receptive to people's personal situation. Now, if you see someone who is clearly disengaged, then that's a different story. I mean, you as a manager, as a business owner, as a business leader, you have to you have to find out what's happening and, and, and do your best to manage for that. But as far as quiet quitting itself, I, I think it's always been there. We just, I think we're now paying attention. Mm -hmm. I just think it's putting boundaries in place. The pandemic ties a lot of different things. Yeah. You may need to value your grandmother a little bit more, your cousin, your children a little bit more. And if you're on your email until 10 o'clock every night, it doesn't show them that they feel valued. There's a lot of anxiety in the world right now, mm -hmm. and people have put more personal boundaries and expressed them in the workplace than they did. I mean, look, I was trading derivatives. The market closed at 2.30. I stopped answering my phone at 5.30, because we're not taking lunch. The market doesn't open again until 8 o'clock. <laughs> Don't call me, right? I was known for it on my team. <laughs> right? So, <laughs> was I quiet quitting? No, I was committed to you, but not for all 24 hours in my day. And so I personally think that my job enables my life, and that's the way I always approached it in my 30-year career. It is not my main dish, it is a side dish, it is wonderful, it is flavorful, I give it all I can, but I was never one who lived for work. 
I was always a high performer, but I'm not. I'm gonna shoot the shit with you about the market at six o'clock at night. Dude, I'd be sleeping. I was at high yoga. <laughs> so I think this is more Generation Z deciding that they're gonna put more boundaries in place because they've gone through. This is the generation that lived through the 2008 recession. They saw the replaceability, so you have to build a life that has a more full spectrum approach. And so we gave it a cute name, but I think it's just boundaries. And as a last question, I know you said it may have a different perspective. So yeah, I mean, and we've crazy. gotten employed having another job because they are not in the office and we don't see them. We, 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 I, mean, I, I don't know how well this scales. But, um, it's, it's accountability. Right? So to manage, what we found is to, I mean, again, we're not, fortunately, we're not like dealing with many instances of quiet quitting or whatever you want to call it, but to your point, even like slacking, just, just low performance, right? That's what it is. It's another version of that. It just, again, it puts the right pressure on the business to create individual accountability for outcomes. It forces you to come up with ways to measure and monitor and engage your employees, but then you have to make sure that the way in which you choose to do that adheres to your cultural norms and to the culture you want your company to have, right? So we like a, a big thing for us is we, whenever we've started to explore the possibility of time tracking, it just never works out with our engineers because the signal that we'll send them will be antithetical to everything else we're telling them about how we trust them. So we've had to come up with other mechanisms in order to create visibility of the work being done and to ensure that if there is, you know, a bad apple somewhere, we catch it. And then it's also just because of the intensity of the work at the company, you can't hide for very long. We're very lean. There's not, there's work to do. Um, you know, and so, again, I think being bootstrapped has helped that too, right? I can absolutely see how in a world where a company gets overfunded with equity capital or whatever, you can get that. And then that's when people can hide because you have people who don't need to give it their all necessarily to accomplish whatever outcome you're trying to accomplish. So, yeah, that's been our experience with that. And so, I think we are out of time. This has been a great panel. Thank you all. For more information on this show and other resources, visit fastamron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at Fast Amron.